Welcome to today's podcast from Coastline Calvary Chapel in Gulf Breeze, Florida. We hope this message encourages you and brings light into your life. If you have a Bible, John chapter 4, I think Neil told you I'm speaking on all is not well at the well. We have this encounter with Jesus here in the gospel that, well, there's a lot more to the story than just the woman at the well. And she's there. In fact, there's probably four or five sermons in this brief encounter because the woman's there. And if you know the story, the townspeople end up there. They make their way to the well after the woman goes into Samaria. That's where the place and that's where the well is. And well, just right outside of Samaria in a place called Sychar. And she goes and tells the townspeople, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And they all come. There's the disciples at the well. If you know the story again, they they go to get something to eat, they come back, they see Jesus talking to a woman, she leaves, and then the whole town comes out and Jesus says, why do you say, and he kind of rebukes the disciples, this is another whole message, why do you say four months until the harvest? Because it's like they're always putting off something. It's kind of four months away, it'll happen down the way, it's not happening yet. Jesus says to the disciples, lift up your eyes. Look at the fields, they're white to harvest. And even though it wasn't harvest time, most likely at that time, here came all these people from the towns, most likely in white robes because it was summertime. And he says, look, the harvest is white. And then there's Jesus at the well. He's there too. So you've got the woman, you've got the townspeople, you've got the disciples, you've got Jesus. And Jesus has this thing he says to his disciples when they bring back lunch. He says, I, I, I'm not hungry, is what he basically says. I have food to eat that you know not of. And there's motivation in his life due to ministering to this woman. So there's a lot going on at the well. There's racism at the well. The woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan? And there was a lot of conflict and difficulties between the two racial groups. There was religion at the well. If you know the story, she says to Jesus, Now now your father said to worship on the mountain in Jerusalem. We say to worship on the mountain here in Samaria. Which one's right? And so there's racism, there's religion, there's a reputation at the well. She's had five husbands. And Jesus points it out. There's ministry at the well. He offers her living water. There's a miracle at the well. She, she comes to salvation. She recognizes Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. There's that motivation that Jesus gets when he's tired, he's hungry, and they come back and they want to give him some food. And he says, oh, I'm energized. I'm, 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 you know, I have food to eat that you know not of. And, of course, there's thirst at the well. She goes, give me this water that I might not have to come here to drink. 
There's the turmoil of the woman at the well where, where she says, you know, you're right, I have no husband. And there's the testimony of the woman at the well where she goes into the city and says, come and see. So at first things are not well at the well. But all's well that ends well, and this ends well at the well, right? It really does. So the story begins in John chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Jesus leaves Judea down in the south by Jerusalem. He'd been there for the feast. And he's on his way back to Galilee. So he's leaving southern Israel, and he's heading north to Galilee. It's a four-day, maybe five-day journey on foot. It's rocky. It's hilly. And if you take the direct route, you go through Samaria. So Jesus is taking the direct route. He says, I need to go through Samaria. And he gets there, and it tells us that in verse 8, if you, if you look down a bit, his disciples had gone away for food. And if you read the whole context, and it's a familiar story, that Jesus stays behind. And he sits down at the well. Now, I want you to picture the scene. It's outside the city. It's a place called Sychar. There's an old well there. And Jesus sits down. He's tired. He's hungry. He had just walked a long, long ways. He's all by himself. And in verse 7, he initiates a conversation with a woman of Samaria who comes to draw water. And Jesus simply says to her, Give me to drink. She has no clue who he is. She doesn't know, as we'll see, God's gift of grace and salvation. She doesn't know the joy of forgiveness. She's lost. She's broken. And I would submit to you that Jesus is not the only one who's tired and hungry and thirsty at the well. She is. And this is who she is, and this is her life when Jesus speaks to her for the first time. She's lost. She's, she's thirsty. She, she, she's somewhat of an outcast. She responds to Jesus, and Jesus responds back to her in verse 10 and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Give me a drink. And she responds to him, and we'll look at her response in a few minutes. And, and by the time they finish this conversation, if you go with me down to verse 28... 
the woman leaves her water pot, goes into the city, and says to the men, and, and the word men there could mean men and women. It's not, it's not specifically just man. It's a word used generically. And she says in verse 29, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And look down a little further to verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him and Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, to Jesus, they came to the well. They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days more. And many more believed, verse 41, on his word. And then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you've said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that he is indeed Christ. Now pay attention here. He's Christ, that means Messiah, the Savior of the world. I mean, what an awesome story. From lunchtime to the end of the day, a woman is powerfully converted, goes into her city. Two days later, the whole city seems to be turned upside down, and they are proclaiming that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. One person in a single day becomes a follower of Jesus and impacts the entire town of Samaria. How does this happen? This is an amazing story. It's a powerful story. How does this happen in her life? How does it happen in my life? How does it happen in your life? How can it happen in the people in your Samaria and my Samaria? Because Jesus says, you know, go into all the world, into Judea. Go to Samaria. How does Jesus bring this woman to this place of faith and ministry. I mean, she's not a likely candidate, is she, for reaching the city? If all the church growth groups got together, or Barna Research Group, if you know anything about him, or, or, or church planting organizations, I doubt they would have gone to Samaria and say, well, let's look for someone to evangelize the city. How about that woman over there? No one speaks to her. She has to go to the well by herself in the middle of the day, and she's been married five times, and she's living in adultery right now, so let's pick her to evangelize the city. Probably not. She's divorced. She's sexually broken. Look at the first thing again that, that, that begins to happen. The first thing she says to Jesus after he says, you know, give me a drink, the disciples had gone away, verse 8, into the city to buy food. And the woman of Samaria says to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me a drink, a Samaritan woman, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? This is a pretty clear statement. And if you know anything about the background of the Jews and the Samaritans, it's filled, this statement's filled with racial prejudice. Jesus is a Jewish man. The woman is a Samaritan woman. 
And her first words, I submit to you, are filled with absolute contempt. And here's what she says. You're a Jew. Why in the world are you talking to me? Because there's this huge racial barrier between the two of them. And as you probably know, racism is very real. It's real in our time today. We're dealing with it in all the political stuff that's coming down and all around us right now. And everyone's stepping very carefully around it. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and I live in the South, as you do too, many of you. I lived through the whole integration of the school system as a 16-year-old. I remember being bused from three blocks away from Pensacola High School to Booker T. Washington High School, which was predominantly a black high school. And I was 16 years old, had long blonde hair, and I was a surfer. I dropped out of school. That's how tense it was. I mean, we, we lived at that time, as you know, an hour away from Alabama, and the governor was... George Wallace. If you know anything about the history of racism in America, well, it was out of control at that time. And the history of tension and hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, well, it's well known in the ancient world. If you're familiar with this story at all, 700 years before Jesus comes to this well, the Assyrians invaded northern Israel and took the majority of the Samaritans into captivity. And what they did was that they, in turn, filled Samaria with all kinds of nations, all kinds of races, all kinds of religions, all kinds of mixtures of people, and the Samaritans intermarried with them. And those in the south, down in the southern Judea, where Jesus had just come from and made his way to Samaria, well, they saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, as idolaters. They even established their own place of worship there in Samaria and never came back to the temple. In 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, we have the story, but I just pick out one verse to show you what they said about the Samaritans, 700 years back. They feared the Lord, but they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. They brought them back. They mixed them with all these other races and religions. And so Jesus goes into this extreme pagan culture where you have all kinds of tribes and nations and tongues and religions. And this is part of the story. Listen, no race, no culture, no religious group, no sexually broken person is beyond the love and grace and call of Jesus Christ. None. And America, listen, America is a modern-day Samaria. We live in it, filled with Jews and Buddhists, Muslims, socialists, Republicans, Democrats, Hindus, Jehovah Witness, atheists, Mormons, sexually confused people, racism, gender confusion, religion. 
we are surrounded by all of these different groups and races and religions, and many of them, in fact, probably most of them, know nothing really about Jesus. He's way outside of their orbit. And that's where you and I live, whether you realize it or not. In fact, look at chapter 4, verse 20, as this woman is speaking to Jesus. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Not only has she got this racial barrier, you're a Jew, but here's her religious barrier. She's familiar with worship, at least some sort of worship. And she also knows in verse 25 that, that there's a Messiah. She says to him in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. She, she believes in Messiah. She doesn't believe in worship in the proper way or proper place according to the Messiah. She's confused. Her religion is tied to, well, our fathers say. It's, it's tied to tradition. It's tied to uh, rituals and paganism. And so she's, there she is, married five times, confused about religion, confused about marriage, obviously, and, and has some racial issues and some religious issues going on. And she meets up with Jesus. Now, I, I grew up here in, in Pensacola. My parents moved to Gulf Breeze when I was... 16. And whether you know it or not, you and I, if you live around here, we live in what a lot of people in the north and the west call the Bible belt. And sometimes they say it's more belt than it is Bible. Pastors beat the sheep. But I remember my dad, my biological father, would get on this kick sometimes when he'd want to go to church, and he'd take us to church. He wasn't a Christian. We weren't Christians, but we had to go. And I remember it was, it was, it was such a turmoil for my older brother and I because he made us wear a tie, and we were surfers. My brother was probably 18. I was 16. He would make us go to church on a Sunday morning. We had to sit there very quiet with a tie on. And, you know, we liked to listen to the music that was happening during the 60s, right? So we go into this church, and they got an organ. There's a choir singing. We got our ties on. We're bored completely out of our minds. We know the surf is up. What are we doing here, you know? We just want out. And so when we were finally able to get out from under that, we, we hated church. That's the last place we would ever go. And I knew a lot of the kids who went to the church that we visited when my dad wanted to go to church, and, and they all went to church all the time, but none of them were living a Christian lifestyle because I knew them from high school. It was what their fathers did. It was kind of inherited religion. It's what a lot of good southern people do. They just go to church. Not because they're in love with Jesus, not because they want to know him or grow him. It's just, well, I go to church. So this woman, she has this racial issue, this religious issue, but she also has a reputation in the town. It's very sad. It's very real. It's very hurtful. She's well known in the community. 
In verse 18, in Jesus' dialogue with her, he says to her, For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. See, see let me have your attention. Her personal history, uh, it's, it's filled with a lot of failure. It, it's filled, it seems like, with a lot of rejection, a lot of brokenness. I mean, marriage is supposed to be a day of celebration and hope and expectation and here we go, we got a future together and let's see what's going to happen. But five of them, five of those marriages ended in disappointment and guilt, rejection. Did she have kids? I don't know. Maybe she couldn't have kids. That's why the relationship ended up broken over and over. This was a big deal in her day. I don't know what ended those five marriages over and over and over and over and over again. They failed. Was there gossip? Yeah, there's gossip all over the town. I mean, let's suppose I've been married five times, and I'm up, there's people in the congregation, he's been married five times. I know. What's he doing up there? Don't go to him for marriage counseling. <laughs> there's scorn. And Jesus says, in fact, the guy you're living with right now, and this as a side note, what he's saying, and, and I think we can pick up the tone, is that what she's doing now is not acceptable to God. So Jesus is, is in Samaria for this reason. Listen, he looks beyond race. He looks beyond religion. He looks beyond reputation. He looks beyond gender. He looks beyond divorce. He looks beyond failure. He is ministering to this woman. Jesus is not uptight about a person's religion. Jesus is not uptight about a person's gender. He's not uptight that she's been married five times. He deals with it, but he doesn't distance himself from her. Jesus doesn't get uptight about a person's politics or their reputation. Jesus doesn't see someone driving down the street with a bumper sticker that says, I voted for Hillary, and he goes, curse him, God. That's not his heart. He, he, he's not that way. He, he doesn't, you know, see bumper stickers that say impeach Trump and get mad. I don't know, you know. I, I know he loves people. And we all have neighbors and relatives and, and co-workers and friends. And, and, and some of them are about as far away as you can get from faith. How do you talk to them? How do you share with them without being self-righteous or coming across churchy or weird? Well, I believe Jesus does an amazing job here, and we're just going to look at it. And I believe he begins with something that's so powerful and so necessary and so needful for all of us. Jesus begins his conversation with hope. Look at verse 14. He says to her, whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into an everlasting life. Jesus understands and he begins with her thirst. 
Not her, not her physical thirst, but her spiritual thirst that everyone has. Everyone has this inner longing for what they have not found, what's missing. The unmet, undefined need deep inside that everyone has. Now, don't let the culture or the enemy tell you they don't. I had it. You had it. Everyone has it. Something's missing. There's something more to life. There's got to be. So Jesus tells about this fountain, this spring that, that she can have, a, a source of life, a source of fulfillment, a source of satisfaction, uh, th- that which will satisfy the thirst. He begins to tell her about it. And she, well, I believe she realizes that he says, I can give it. In fact, in verse 14, he says, I shall give and I shall give. He, he says it twice. I can give it to you. Jesus says there's life, there's fulfillment, there's satisfaction, and I can give you that. I can give it to you now, he says. And more than that, it will be in you. And, and, and it's not a, a temporary thing that I'll give you, who says. It's not a temporary high or a fix or a quick thing. It's not a place you go or something you do or a thing you have to buy. It'll be like a fountain. It'll be like a spring. And he says it's everlasting. It'll be yours now, tomorrow. It'll be yours in life. It'll be yours in death. It'll be yours for ever, everlasting. So Jesus speaks to her first about hope before he ever mentions her past, before he ever mentions her theology, her failures, her reputation. And I know Jesus deals with people in in all kinds of different ways, but I think it's significant that he deals with this woman who is so far broken and without hope, that he deals with her first about her hope. See, I think no one will leave their sin or their old life just because we tell them how bad or destructive it is. First, let's give them hope that there's a better life. And that's where Jesus starts. I mean, think about the prodigal son. You know that story. He takes his inheritance. He goes into a far country. The Bible says he, he wastes it all. He spends it all. His cars repossess. He gets kicked out of the apartment. And he, there he is in the pig pen eating slop, the food of the pigs. That's the story. He's lost everything, and he's at the very bottom. And it says he comes to himself, and he begins to reason with himself. Finally, he goes, you know, back home. Even my father's hired servants, right, they have it better than I do right now. I could get out of this pigsty, clean myself up a little bit, make my way home, and I'll tell my father, look, I know I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm not worthy to be called your son any longer. If you could make me just one of your hired servants, I would live out there in one of those work shacks, and I would work myself to death just to get back into a place where I'm not eating pig slop. And that's what he's thinking. Now, suppose he knew, however, that when he would make his way home and come over the hill and his father would see him off in the distance, 
that his father was waiting for him. And he would run to him. And he'd put a robe on him and a ring on his finger. And he would hug him and he'd kiss him. And he'd put sandals on his feet. And he would say, hey, let's kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. But, but dad, dad, no, hey, hey, you're my son. You've come home. But, 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 no buts. I mean, if he had known what was waiting for him, not condemnation. The father was not going to stick him out and make him a hired servant. See, life change begins with hope. I think he would have ran home if he had known the father was going to do that. I think he would have gone home a lot earlier if he had known the father was going to treat him that way. But this is how the father treats those who come home. It doesn't condemn you. Say, well, you, let's see how you work out. Let's see if you can actually live this Christian life. That's not what he says. He says, welcome home. Leaving the old life becomes possible when you know God has grace and there's grace waiting for you. That's what's waiting for you if you come home to him. Just grace. Now, he does deal with her situation. He, he does get honest with her sin and with her life. And he asks her some questions. But you'll not harden your heart when you know that his love and his forgiveness and his grace is waiting for you. So Jesus says, I can give you what you have longed for and looked for your whole life. And it'll spring up, it'll be like a well. But before he gives it to her, he says, Let, let's, let's talk about your situation. Let's talk about your heart. Let's talk about your life. Let's talk about what's real inside of you. And that's what he wants to do. That's what he has to do before he can give that grace. He wants to talk to you. He wants to talk to me about what's really going on inside. This is not a game he's playing. This is reality. And so she's listening. I mean, she's dialed in. She wants this water. She's, she's got a thirst. Sir, give me this water, verse 15, that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So Jesus says, man, she's, she's listening. She wants what I have to offer. And he says to her in verse 16, well, go call your husband and come here. Let me have your attention. Hope has begun. The, the thirst and the hope and the offer has begun to open her heart. You might know what that's like when you first hear about Jesus. And you think, wow, I could be forgiven. I could start over. Hope begins to open her heart. And so Jesus wants to deal with the issues in life. And I love this statement. I love this statement about Jesus. It's so careful it's so gentle. It's so caring. It's like a shepherd has found an injured lamb, and he, he's holding her uh, with her wounds and her life issues, and he says, go call your husband. What an inspired statement. And, and, and she answers and says, I, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you have well said, I have no husband. Good for you. For you've had five, and the one whom you now is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And now she's, a, she's astonished. 
She's like, oh, my goodness. And she responds, I perceive you're a prophet. Now, a prophet is someone who knows what they cannot know unless God lets them know it. It's kind of like Nathan and David when he told David the story about the little lamb. And, and, and David goes, oh, that man, he, 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 should, be, he should be thrown in jail. He, he should, he should. And Nathan says, you're the man. How'd you know, Nathan, I'm a prophet? And suddenly this woman realized, I'm standing in front of a prophet. He knows me, knows all about my past. He knows about my five marriages. He's he's dealing with this, and, and here I am. I've been married five times. I'm standing in front of a prophet. This is not going to end well for me. But here's the deal about Jesus. He is a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. Nothing is hidden from him. He's a prophet indeed. All things are open to him. All hearts are open to him. No secrets are hidden from him. But thank God he's more than a prophet, right? He's also a savior. He's also one who's willing to die for our sins. He's one willing to forgive our sins and offer us salvation. And I believe her mind right now is spinning. Jesus has opened up something to her that's never been opened up to her before. She recognizes he's a prophet. He's talking about a fountain, a spring. He's talking about her brokenness, about her marriages. She's, she's totally engaged in this conversation just with Jesus and her all alone outside the city. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And and I think she's trying to figure out, okay, I, I don't think she's trying to change the subject or throw in theology to muddy the water. She's exposed. She's thirsty. She sees what's happening. My life is not pleasing to God. So she asks the question, well, how, how do I find God? Do I, really, do I worship on this mountain or your mountain? Do I sacrifice here? How do I get what you're offering me? How do I get there? How do I make it right? How do I truly seek God? So Jesus tells her something that's phenomenal. He says, no, 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 no. Stop. It's not about you seeking God. God is seeking you. That's that's what he tells her. In verse 23, he he, he does define true worship, but he says, the hour is coming, and it's right now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He says, not about you seeking God on this mountain or that mountain. He says, the real deal is this. It's not what God wants you to do, but it's what God wants you to be. It's what God wants you to become. God wants you to become a true worshiper. Well, don't I have to do this and this and this and this? Well, let's talk about it, Jesus says, about becoming someone who who is a true worshiper of God. And I would submit to you, that's the key to life. That's the key to quenching the thirst, the satisfaction, the fulfillment we look for. That's the key for 
sexually broken people, for lost people, for divorced people, for people who are caught in racism, people who are caught in religion, is to become people who worship him in spirit and in truth. It transforms your life from the inside out. It's not about church attendance, although that's a part of life when you come to him. It's about becoming a true worshiper of God. That's where it's at. Not about religion. To worship Him in spirit. To, to be born again, so to speak, and have that new spirit. And, and to, to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. To fall completely in love with Him. To worship Him in spirit and in truth. The way God himself, the one true God, has revealed worship to work. To come to him the true way, the real way. Jesus himself saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To come to him with my whole heart, having my spirit reborn, and then worshiping him according to who he really is as it's been revealed by Jesus himself and all through the Scripture. And to be a worshiper like that, well, it transforms everything. And Jesus tells her, that's what I'm after. How does she become this kind of person? Well, not offering sacrifices on mountains or keeping traditions or going to church. She's got a lot of baggage. So it seems like as you read the story, and we're almost finished, in verse 25... It seems like she wants to shut it all down. The woman said to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. And when he comes, well, he'll tell us all things. It's almost like she says to him, oh, one day, yeah, God's going to straighten it all out. Messiah will come and we'll know the real deal. It's kind of like a conversation killer, it seems to me. Like, okay, prophet man, one day the Messiah comes, we'll all know the truth. I've got cooking to do. I've got to get this water back. I've got some washing, some cleaning. It's getting late. One day Messiah will reveal all things. And so Jesus responds. He, he, he kind of he looks her in the eye, if you will. In verse 26, and he responds to this, and he says, I who speak to you am he. Lady, I've come to tell you all things. You say when Messiah comes, he'll tell you all things. Well, I'm telling you now. To help you become what God created you to be. To give you a fountain, a spring that will cause you to become who God is seeking you to be. See, the Father is a seeker of those who will truly worship him. And I would submit to you, that's the encounter we all need, every one of us, to find ourselves truly worshiping the one true God, to know who his son is, to, to listen to what he has to say to us, and, and, and to find ourselves uh, with what Jesus promised that he could give. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, because he does speak, 
give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would give you living water. Whoever drinks of the water he gives will never thirst, but the water will become in him a fountain springing up into everlasting life. That's the core of the story. By an old well where Jesus finds himself encountering all kinds of issues like race and religion and rituals, where Jesus deals with a broken person who's, who's had all kinds of problems in marriage and now is living with someone outside of marriage, he kind of pushes it all aside and says, there are thirsty hearts in the world. And I can, I can, he says, give you what you're looking for. And I want you first to know, he says, that there's hope for you. There's hope for you. And it's a wonderful story because it says to us, there's hope for us. And there's hope for all those people around us who are trapped and are dealing with all these issues that we're dealing with in our culture today. I mean, it's scary to kind of turn on the news, isn't it? We got this whole coronavirus thing going on. My, my, I'm scheduled to teach in a conference in Germany in May. I've been over there many, many times. My wife and I are watching the news last night. And, and the guy just slightly mentioned, and there might be coronavirus in Europe. And all of a sudden, my wife's ears went up. And she goes, there's coronavirus in Europe? We're not going to Germany. I go, you're not? <laughs> and now they're calling it perhaps a pandemic type thing that might spread and we're living in this crazy time right now in our world where so much is going on if you've seen the locust plague that's spreading across floods every time you turn on the television who knows what's going on in politics in our country it's bizarre <laughs> it's crazy and i'm just saying even so come lord jesus I would much rather have him sitting on the throne than anybody that has potential to sit on the throne in America right now. And you know what? Jesus is more interested in people's thirst and their heart and their lostness and their brokenness than he is in their religion and their politics. He looks way beyond that, and so should you and I. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join us again as we dive into the scripture, going verse by verse here at Coastline Calvary Chapel.